Good morning, guys. Um, so we're continuing in our series through Genesis, not Galatians, through Genesis. Uh, last week, we learned that God is the promise-keeping God who is able to do the impossible. So just to kind of catch you up, last week, remember, we talked about uh, how God fulfilled His promise to give Abraham and Sarah a son. Uh, Isaac, the miracle child, was born uh, to Abraham, who was 100 years old at the time, and that's a Sarah who was 90 years old, and it was kind of like the culmination of uh, years, decades, really, of prayer, and, and God's promise is kept. It's a celebration, but then in Genesis 22, we're going to see uh, the story take a really, really surprising turn, and so uh, if you got your Bibles, you can uh, go ahead and turn over to Genesis 22. And we're going to do something a little bit different this morning. Uh, instead of reading the whole passage up front, we're going to kind of walk through it bit by bit. So in a couple of uh, moments, I'll read the first two uh, verses of Genesis while you're uh, turning there. Um, I did want to I did want to tell you guys, uh, you know, just full disclosure um, on my part. Um, man, I really miss uh, you guys. I miss meeting together with you. I miss being together on Sunday mornings and. Uh, it's honest, just to be honest, like it's gotten hard, uh, you know, continuing to to preach, you know, to a camera uh, every, you know, usually Fridays or Saturdays is when we uh, record this. And uh, it's not the same. Uh, I mean, I'm thankful for the technology. I'm thankful that uh, we're able to do this. Um, I know uh, ultimately um, you know, what what's happening here when when, uh, you know, we're preaching a sermon is that uh, just one person's spiritual gifts uh, are being used to help edify the body. And in reality, like I long for the day when all of the body of Christ, when our entire church is together once again, and we're all utilizing our spiritual gifts and ministering to each other. And I would much rather be able to minister to you and use this gift uh, in person. Uh, but um, what's taking place here and the reason that I'm doing this, even though as uncomfortable it is, as it is preaching to a camera, is ultimately I want you guys to be built up as a church. I want you to be encouraged uh, I think that this passage, Genesis 22, uh, teaches us some really important uh, lessons. It reveals who God is uh, to us. And my prayer is that uh, as you see more clearly who God is, uh, that you'll be encouraged and spurred on in your faith. And uh, also my prayer is that if, if uh, there's anybody watching that doesn't have a saving relationship with Jesus, that um, Lord willing, today uh, would be the day that that happens, that uh, God would open your eyes and uh, show you that uh, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So I just wanted to share that with you guys. Um, and uh, yeah, love y'all. Miss you. Well, let's go ahead and jump into the passage. Uh, Genesis 22, 1 and 2. Here's what it says. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So again, this is a really, really surprising turn of events because this seems to be contradicting everything that God has done in Abraham's life up to this point. And you think about Abraham's life, it's all been based on God's covenant with him that I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you descendants as numerous as the stars. And then in chapter 17, he you know, like tells Abraham, it's going to be you and Sarah are going to have a son. You're going to name him Isaac. And it's through Isaac that my promise will be fulfilled. And now 
God is telling Abraham to go and sacrifice Isaac, which seems to just contradict everything that God has been doing in Abraham's life the entire time. Now, we, in verse 1, are made privy to some information that Abraham didn't know. We're told that God tested Abraham. Abraham was not aware that this was a test at the time. Uh, We have the benefit of hindsight. uh, And so we know that this was a test that God was taking Abraham through. Uh, All Abraham knows at this point is that the God who's faithfully kept his promises and been with him throughout his entire life is now asking him to surrender, to sacrifice uh, what is really most precious to him in his life. So, there's kind of like there's kind of two suspenseful questions hanging over this story. The first one is what's Abraham going to do? Like is he actually going to go through with this? Is he actually going to do this or is he going to disobey God? And then the second question is what's going to happen to God's promise? Because it appears that God's promise is now in jeopardy. Like what is God doing here? Like why would God ask Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but uh, I think that this passage is really relatable because um, God oftentimes does things in my life that I just don't understand. And God probably does things in your life that you don't understand as well. And certainly, uh, we don't know everything that was going through Abraham's mind, but he certainly probably had didn't fully understand what God was doing here. And yet, what we're going to see is that Abraham, despite the fact that he doesn't understand, he does trust God. And so if I could if I could summarize the sermon in a sentence, what I would say is that God's people should trust and obey him no matter the circumstances because he always provides. God's people should trust and obey him no matter the circumstances because he always provides. So this passage really kind of gives us Uh, a picture of that. It shows us through Abraham's example what genuine faith looks like, but it also shows us that God always provides for those who trust in him, even when we don't understand what God is doing or why he's doing things the way that he's doing them. So uh, as we walk through this passage, I'm going to point out to you four lessons on a life of faith. That's going to kind of be how we walk through and uh, look at the the main point of this sermon. Um, Because here's the deal. Abraham is not the only one who will have his faith tested. All of us will. Like we said, we're all going to go through things where we don't fully understand what God's doing. and, And we're all going to endure testings of our faith where um, we're going to have to trust God with maybe some sensitive areas in our life or uh, parts of our life that are really hard for us to let go of, much like Abraham had to do here with Isaac. And I think that's especially true right now. You know, I mean, we're in the midst of a pandemic. So like some of you guys are dealing with, you know, stress on your finances um, and you're having to trust God in, in new ways there by having, you know, uh, maybe you know your your salary has been cut or something like that, uh, or your job is maybe in jeopardy. Some of you are having to trust God in new ways in your marriage because there's more strain being put on your marriage right now. Uh, some of you are uh, you know having to to trust God with your future uh, in ways that you never really have before, and things are really just kind of suspended in air right now, and you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I think that's true for for most of us. 
So all that to say, this is a super applicable passage for us. Uh, and uh, there is a lot we can learn, and uh, I pray that it will be helpful. So let's go ahead and jump into the first lesson um, of a life of faith. Uh, the first lesson is that a life of faith will encounter testing. So we've kind of seen that in verses 1 and 2 already. Uh, a life of faith will encounter testing. I want to, uh, at the outset, emphasize that when we say testing, that's something very different than tempting. Okay? God does not tempt you. He doesn't tempt anybody to sin. Uh, tempting is, uh, carries the, the idea of, of luring and enticing with deception. That's not what's happening here with Abraham and Isaac, and that's not what God does in our lives. Testing is much different. Testing is, it's a revealing of what's really there. It's a, it's a proving, it's uh, uncovering the genuineness of something or the lack of genuineness. So God has n- numerous purposes for why he tests our faith. I'll, I'll just kind of run through a couple of them. Uh, the, one of the reasons God tests our faith uh, is to prove the genuineness of our faith. So Proverbs 17.3 says, Fire tests the purity of silver and gold, but the Lord tests the heart. Fire tests the the purity of silver and gold, but the Lord tests the heart. So the word for testing in Scripture means proving the genuineness of, much like silver and gold are uh, tried or proved in fire. And nowadays they use, usually they'll use like chemicals or corrosives to, to prove the, uh, the purity of silver. But another way that you can do that and the way that they used to do that was through fire. And that's how precious metals were proved and tested. And so if it came out on the other end of the fire uh, as, okay, this was indeed gold, you know, the gold would stand the test of the fire. Uh, but a fire would, could also expose fool's gold or uh, it could expose gold with a lot of impurities in it. So I I say all that to make the point that trials are not a challenge to see if you can muster up enough faith to pass God's test. That's not what we mean when we say testing, okay? God's not like giving you a challenge and then seeing if you can rise to the occasion and, and meet his standards. That's not a test, okay? Trials and testings expose whether genuine faith ever existed in the first place. That's the point of God's testings, okay? It exposes whether faith was ever there in the first place. It's not so that you can muster up faith or meet a standard. You know, the culture uh, oftentimes you know, uh, tells us that faith is something that you keep to yourself. It's something that you compartmentalize. It's private and you shouldn't let your faith show in public. It should just be something that you just kind of like keep inside of you and it's just kind of another part of your life that doesn't affect the other parts of your life. But this isn't possible, even logically when you think about it, because what you do will always reveal your deepest held beliefs. I mean, like what you believe at your very core is what you're going to do, right? Like uh, there's a chair on the other side of this room and uh, if I am standing in front of that chair, and uh, if I sit down, I'm sitting down because I believe my core that that chair is going to hold me up. And if you tell me to sit down and I say no, then it's because I don't believe that that chair is going to hold 
me up. God tests us to prove the genuineness of our faith. And he also tests us to reveal the object of our affection. He tests us to reveal the object of our affection. Um, So look again at verse 2 here in Genesis 22. Uh, God says to Abraham, he says, Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go. So God knew exactly what he was asking Abraham to do here. There was no secret. God even emphasizes multiple times to Abraham, Hey, Abraham, you know your son? Yeah, like your only son, Isaac, you know, the one who's named, he laughs to remind you of my faithfulness. Uh, Yeah, the one that you really love, that son. That's the one I'm talking about, Abraham. I want you to take that son whom you really love, your only son, Isaac, and I want you to take him and I want you to offer him as a burnt offering. Isaac was the apple of Abraham's eye. He was the miracle child. Abraham had been praying for Isaac for decades. If there was anything that may have threatened or challenged God's position on the throne of Abraham's heart, it would be Isaac. God wanted to ensure that Abraham didn't make an idol out of Isaac. That's because God knows our hearts and he knows we are tempted to turn his good gifts into objects of worship. We are tempted to worship the things that God creates more than God himself. What's your Isaac? What's that one thing that you would be devastated if God asked you to sacrifice it? And one of the ways you can, you know, possibly discover what that thing might be is um, what is it that you get really defensive about if it gets threatened? Uh, what is it that, you know, if even even just the thought of, you know, God asking you to hand that over starts to kind of make you bristle? Uh, oftentimes, the things that stress us out the most, the things that drive us into fear, the things that make us angry, those are like arrows that point us right back to our idols, that point us right back to things that we really, really struggle to trust God with. It, it could be all sorts of things. It can be your career uh, it could be your, your bank account, your finances, it could be a, a relationship, it can even be your family. You know, when, um, when Jesus calls us to follow him, he calls us to leave everything behind. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 37 to 39, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Why, why does Jesus say this? What, why is it that, that if you love your father or more their mother, mother more than Jesus, that you're not worthy of him? Or if you love son or daughter more than Jesus, that you're not worthy of him? It's because true faith treasures Jesus over everything. The, the essence of sin is treasuring, desiring anything more than God. That's why Jesus said the whole law can be summed up in this one command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the essence of 
what it means to have a relationship with God. It's what it means to love God, to glorify God, to obey God, is to love him with all of your heart, okay? So when Jesus calls us to follow him, he's saying, listen, faith, if you love me, right? If you trust in me, then you will put me first. Uh, There will be nothing that will take precedence over me in your life and in your heart. So that's why Jesus says, if you even love your family, more than me, you're not worthy of me because it shows that your faith is not genuine. It only goes so far. And testings and trials really have a way of revealing where our affections truly lie. I mean, they, our affections come out in the midst of testings and trials, especially when those Isaacs that we love those areas of our life that are really hard to let go of, when those things start to get threatened and when God you know, asks us to trust, us with those, trust Him with those things, that's when, um, that's when those affections really come out. Uh, so uh, one more, the third uh, kind of reason, um, it's not, there's not only three reasons, but this is the third reason I'm going to give, that the third reason that God uh, tests our faith is to build our faith. Uh, so James chapter one, verse two and three, some of you may know this passage. It's a pretty popular passage uh, and a powerful passage. Uh, so James says this, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Count it joy when you meet trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Thomas Manton says, trials not only approve, but improve. So what the book of James is saying there and what Thomas Manton is, it was saying there in his quote is that God uses trials to help build up our faith over time. Abraham had been in the school of faith for over 100 years. He had seen God come through again and again and again. He had seen God be faithful to keep his promises. He had experienced God's provision. He had been in situations where he really had to trust God. I mean, just think about all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, where God calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And he says, go to the land of which I will show you. And then, you know, so Abraham just goes, he obeys. He doesn't know where he's going, but he takes God at his word. That was kind of Abraham's first step of faith, right? Um, did God ask Abraham to take, you know, every single step of faith all at once? No, God is gentle and patient with us. He, he guides us along step by step so that as we grow in our faith, um, we're, we are stretched more and more as we grow in our maturity and we learn, uh, God's character and we learn to trust him more and more as we experience his provision along the way. And so we see that throughout the progression of Abraham's, uh, life. And it's, it's, isn't it interesting, too, how we come full circle? In Genesis chapter 12, God asks Abraham to leave behind his father's household and to surrender his past. And now God is asking Abraham to surrender his son and to trust him with his future. Isn't that interesting how it's come full circle here? Um, so faith, our faith is built up, it's formed in the furnace of affliction, and that's really clear throughout Abraham's life. It's one of the big takeaways we can uh, take out of Abraham's life. Uh, Trials teach us to trust that God will provide and remain the same, even in the midst of impossible situations. Uh, I like Charles Spurgeon's 
uh, what he says about this. He says, Faith without trial is like a diamond uncut, the brilliance of which has never been seen. A fish without water or a bird without air is faith without trial. We may surely expect that our faith will be tested. Consider it joy when you face trials. Yeah, that's something that, um, again, apart from the Holy Spirit, uh, apart from the Spirit, there's no way that'll make sense. It's not, we don't default towards rejoicing at trials. Uh, it's something that we learn over time as we continue to experience God's provision. So the big question at this point in the story right now is what will Abraham do? Is he going to go through with it? We've talked about the testing, uh, but but now we've seen that Abraham's been presented with this test. What's he going to do? So let's keep reading in verse 3 and see what happens next. Uh, it says, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. And I'm going to leave it there like a cliffhanger for you. We're going to have to wait and see what happens to the next point. Here's... But, but what I want to do, I, I want to focus in right here on verses 3 to 10 uh, to, to draw out our next lesson. That lesson the second lesson uh, we learn about a life of faith here is that a life of faith is evidenced by obedience. A life of faith is evidenced by obedience. Um, just a few observations here. I mean, this is really quite amazing uh, when you consider what's happening here. The first thing we notice in verse 3 is that uh, Abraham obeyed right away. I mean, God tells Abraham, go sacrifice your son Isaac. And so like Abraham wakes up early in the morning, saddles his donkey, takes two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cuts the wood for the offering and he, and he starts the three-day journey toward the place that God told him to go. Um, I, was, I, I used to tell our, our, uh, our, the previous church that I was a pastor at uh, in Canada, I would tell them all the time, delayed obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Is there something that maybe you know God has been calling you to do or something that you know God has been calling you to stop doing that you've been putting off? And there's, there is a difference. There's a huge difference between battling sin and coddling sin. There may be some of you who you know God has been calling you to obey Him in something, and and maybe you've even used the language, oh, I've been struggling with this, or I'm struggling with that, but in your heart of hearts, you know, I just haven't really you know, taken the initiative to obey God in this, and I've been putting it off. Uh, I would urge you to remember that delayed obedience is disobedience. 
What does faith in God looks like? Faith in God looks like trusting him, even though we're not comfortable doing it yet, or even though it doesn't completely make sense yet. When God calls us to do something, we trust him because we trust that we, that he knows what's best. And that's amazing. We see Abraham right away just obeying here in this passage. I also, one of the other things, Abraham didn't grumble or question. You don't hear a peep out of him in terms of grumbling or complaining or questioning God. He was calm. And when Isaac asked where the lamb was, uh, he didn't, you know, like grumble or complain or even express doubt. He confidently trusted God. Um, I've told you guys uh, before that the book of Genesis was most likely uh, uh, composed sometime uh, when Israel was wandering around in the wilderness by Moses. And it's hard not to imagine uh, when uh, they heard this that, uh, you know, to think about the fact that when they were in the wilderness, uh, the people of Israel often grumbled and complained. Like when they didn't have water and they grumbled and complained uh, to Moses about God or when they, they, wanted, quail, they wanted meat to eat because they were tired of the manna. And so they grumbled and complained. How often do we grumble when things aren't going well? I don't know if I'm the only one that does that. Uh, I doubt that I am. Uh, I know that uh, I have a tendency to grumble. And, you know, even as I'm saying that out loud right now and kind of joking about it, it, I'm also, it's not a laughing matter. I mean, it's really not. Um, Grumbling against the Lord, uh, especially in light of how good God is to us and how faithful uh, He is, um, is, is a grievous thing. It's a sin. Um, it's, it's a wicked thing to grumble against God. And I know that I can be so quick to do it. I can be, despite God's faithfulness in my life, it, I can be so quick to I complain or to doubt him. And, uh, it, it shows, it just highlights the, the wickedness of my own heart and yet the, the goodness and the mercy and grace of God that he continues to like love me and that, um, like I can't out his grace because the blood of Jesus covers my sin. Um, that's why the gospel is such good news. Uh, I mean, I even think about a recent example for us. Uh, we, you know, in our adoption process, we've had some bumps in the road and we've had some delays and it's just been easy to, you know, like have moments of questioning, like, does God really want us to do this? Is this really going to happen? Um, and yeah, it's something that's a real struggle for many of us. Uh, if, I don't know, maybe you've been grumbling against God lately. Uh, and if you have, today is a great opportunity to uh, not to despair, but to repent of that and to ask God to forgive you uh, for grumbling and complaining. Um, I think all of us have probably grumbled and complained at some point about the fact that we're in quarantine and the fact that, you know, worrying about what's going to happen and when is our state, uh, you know, going to let us, uh, you know, be able to gather again or, uh, you know, things like that. We, we're all being inconvenienced and it's such an easy time to grumble Uh, But I just want to encourage you, uh, if you've been doing that, repent of it, stop grumbling, and let's start praising God uh, more often instead of grumbling, and let's trust Him uh, like Abraham did. Um, Another thing we see here that Abraham does is that um, Abraham trusted God more than his eyes. He trusted God more than his eyes. Um, I I mean, just a couple places like verse 5. He says, says, Abraham said to the young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and we'll come back again to you. Did you notice that? Like he, like, wait, Abraham, you know you're you're about to go and sacrifice your son, right? So like, but he just said, we'll, we'll, we'll be right back, guys. Now, 
do we know for sure what Abraham was thinking there? Um, you know, no. I mean, maybe he was just telling the two young men that so that they didn't get alarmed. I mean, what's he going to say? Hey, I'm going to go sacrifice my son. I'll be right back. They'd be like, what? <laughs> Abraham, you're crazy. So uh, we don't know exactly what Abraham's thinking, but I do think we get uh, maybe a, a window into what Abraham's thinking because then look at verse 8. When Isaac asks Abraham, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? What does he say? He says, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. I mean, it seems pretty evident that we don't know exactly what Abraham was thinking, but Abraham never questioned that God was going to keep his promise to give, to, to make Isaac into a great nation. Uh, he believed that when God had said through Isaac, I'm going to bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars, he believed it would happen. How was he so sure? What's cool is that the book of Hebrews chapter 11 actually gives us a glimpse into this. Um, listen to Hebrews eleven seventeen to 19 and what it says, what God's word says about, um, you know, Abraham in this specific situation. It says that by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it is said through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And listen to verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So Abraham thought, you know what? Like, I don't know what God's doing. I don't know even if I'm going to have to go through with this. But one way or another, I know God is going to keep his promise because if there's one thing I've learned in my life, it's that God is faithful and God provides. So even if it means that God is going to raise Isaac from the dead, that's what's going to happen. So I'm going to trust the Lord. That is astonishing. He didn't care about the circumstances. His trust was in God's word alone. He trusted God's word more than his eyes. I mean, and all, all of this, you know, Abraham's example of faith here, I mean, this is, this is certainly written to show us what genuine faith looks like, okay? I mean, this is what, this is what faith in God uh, looks like. And it's, it's, um, it's meant to, to point us to the reality that faith without works is dead. James uh, also um, draws on this point here. In James chapter 2, he uses Abraham as an example. Uh, listen to what James says in James 2, 21 to 23. He says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So, Sometimes that verse can be confusing because you read it and you go, wait a second, wasn't Abraham justified by faith? Like doesn't, you know, Genesis 15, 6, we talked about a couple weeks ago, it says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And the apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4 talks about how Abraham was justified by faith. But here Paul says, I mean, James says, was not Abraham justified by works? What's, what, what gives here? Is, are James and Paul at odds? No, when Paul uh, uses the word justified, when he says Abraham was justified by faith, he's 
Uh, he's using the word justified in the sense of a legal standing before God. Uh, James is, is using the word justified here in a different way. Uh, for James, uh, he's using the word justified in the sense that um, Abraham's obedience was proof that his saving faith was evidence. Almost like if there was a court case and then some in the middle of the case while uh, you know the, ar- the uh, arguments were going on, some decisive evidence was introduced into the case that beyond a shadow of a doubt said, okay, now we know this is the truth. And so that's kind of like what James is saying here. He's saying that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. So he's saying that Abraham's obedience here in Genesis 22 was the evidence, it was the fruit of his faith, okay? So it doesn't mean that faith plus works saves. It doesn't mean that you know you have to obey God to be counted as righteous and that you have to obey God to earn your salvation. What it's saying is that genuine faith, wherever it is present, will be followed by obedience. Obedience to God is the fruit that flows from faith. Okay, There's a huge difference there. It's, uh, let me give you a, kind of an illustration to maybe help wrap your mind around this. So um, say you, you and I are on an airplane and the airplane's going down and there are parachutes on the airplane and I take a parachute and I hand you this parachute and I say, put this parachute on and it will save you. Okay. And in this analogy, the parachute is the gospel of Jesus Christ and you are you and the plane is your life and it's about to end and it's going down, okay? And I say, put this parachute on and it will save you. And you look at that parachute and you say, I believe with all of my heart that that parachute will save me. I believe more than anything I've ever believed in my life. Now, you can look at it and say that all you want. You can talk about how great the parachute is. You can extol the the glories of the parachute. You can talk about the the qualities of the parachute and how reliable it is, but it won't save you unless you put it on. You must put the parachute on to be saved. So it's, it's not enough to profess faith in the parachute. You must actually wear it. In the same way, it's not enough to just profess faith and to give lip service to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must actually walk out our faith. We must actually trust in him. We must actually take steps of faith in Jesus. Um, Another illustration, the trust fall. Some of you may have done a trust fall at camp, right? When you're doing that trust fall and you fall backwards, you're trusting the people to catch you, but you actually have to fall backwards. If you don't fall backwards, it betrays the fact that your faith is not genuine. It's not surface level. You don't actually trust them to catch you no matter how much uh, you say that you do, right? Your faith is proved by your works. That's what James means in James chapter 2. And that's what Abraham does here in Genesis 22. He proves his faith by obeying God even when it doesn't make sense. Some of you watching today may be realizing that you've been saying you believe in the parachute your entire life, but you've never put that parachute on. You have been talking about Jesus and you tell people you're a Christian and you tell people that you trust in Jesus, but when you look at the fruit of your life, you know you're not trusting in Jesus. You're not obeying Him. 
you don't have saving faith. And so what that means for you is that right now, that plane is still going down and you're still without a parachute on. And you're not going to survive the day of God's judgment unless you actually trust in Christ, unless you actually trust Him as your Savior and your Lord and you begin to follow Him. That's what genuine faith looks like. And He wants you to trust Him. He, and He is a trustworthy God. And we're going to see in just a moment how He always provides and you can trust Him. And I want you to trust Him. I don't want you to go down uh, without a parachute on. I want you to be able to exit that plane uh, with the confidence that that parachute is going to preserve you and keep you. And the gospel of Jesus Christ will. I mean, for and one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this is because for 24 years, that was me. I was a nominal Christian. I professed faith in Jesus Christ, but I was not following him. I was not obeying him. I did not have fruit in my life that demonstrated that I was walking by faith. I had many Isaacs that I was unwilling to part with. Many, many of them. There were many areas of my life that I didn't trust God with. I wanted Jesus as my Savior, but not as my Lord. But guys, when Christ calls us to follow Him, He calls us unequivocally. Luke 14, 33, He says, Jesus says, if any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It cannot be more clear than that. If you do not renounce all that you have, if you do not put him above everything else, you cannot be his disciple. You cannot continue to willfully live in and walk in sin and simultaneously follow Jesus. He wants you to trust him with that area of your life, whatever that may be. So that's my question for you. Have you done that? Have you put on the parachute? Has your life been transformed from the inside out since becoming a Christian? Now, maybe you still aren't convinced. Maybe you'd ask, why is Jesus worth giving up everything to follow? Well, let's just look at how the rest of the story unfolds to see. What's God going to do? That's the big question that's now hanging in the air now. So we left the story. The knife is suspended over Isaac. Abraham is ready to follow through. What's going to happen? Look at verse 11 of Genesis 22. It says, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is to this day. On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And notice there's a, there's a key phrase here in this verse, um, in, uh, in verse 13 says that Abraham lifted up his eyes behold behind him was a ram caught in the thickets and Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son instead of his son the ram died so that Isaac could live now the people of Israel who heard this story in the wilderness uh, when Moses wrote it um, would have immediately thought of Passover, 
which had just happened, the very first Passover, where God told the people of Israel to take a Passover lamb and to slaughter that Passover lamb and put the blood on the doorposts so that the, uh, the angel of death would pass over them when he went and struck down the firstborn in the land of Egypt. So that Passover lamb died so that they could live. And then they also probably would have thought about the Day of Atonement where the high priest sacrificed the bull. The bull died so that they could live. What's God doing here? What's he teaching? He's teaching his people and he was preparing the way for the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who would come and be sacrificed so that we could live. What God is is teaching us here is that is that in this what this passage, along with other passages, is teaching is that uh, a substitute sacrifice um, is needed. It's teaching us about a a substitute sacrifice. Um, that's a reminder that a substitute is needed to die in our place. Our sin deserves condemnation. Our hearts are bent towards rebellion against God and they're bent towards wickedness. We default to worshiping the things that God has created rather than God himself. We grumble and we complain against God. We rarely give him thanks. We certainly don't give him thanks as much as we should. We find hundreds of things that are more interesting than God and we're and we're just constantly wanting to give our affection and our attention to other little things besides God. We take his name in vain. We mistreat people made in his image. We lie and we covet what belongs to our neighbor. Yeah, we can keep it together on the outside and make ourselves presentable, but I mean, if you really want to get down to like the, the sinfulness of our hearts. Just think about this. Like what would, how would you feel if a movie of your thought life of the past 24 hours of your thought life was published online for the world to see? I mean, how would that make you feel? Would that make you comfortable? I know I wouldn't want that to be the case. God has every right to judge and to condemn us for our sin, but instead God has provided a substitute. Jesus is the Lamb of God who died so that His people could live. And His people is anyone who trusts in Him with the type of faith that Abraham has. If you trust in Jesus, then you are included into God's people. Jesus died on the cross instead of you and I. But unlike this ram, He did not stay dead. Jesus rose from the dead and He's alive. And because he is alive, he gives eternal life to anyone who is united to him by faith. What was this, what was the test of faith really all about for Abraham? Yes, it was partially to reveal whether he believed that God would provide. But more than that, it revealed what Abraham believed about the heart of God. Is God trustworthy? Does he keep his promises? Is he good? I mean, all of those questions were kind of on the line when God told Abraham to go and offer up Isaac as a burnt offering. Did Abraham believe God, that God's heart is good, that God is trustworthy, that God keeps his promises, that God is faithful, that God is love? And the answer is, um, yes, Abraham believed that. And the answer is that, yes, those things are true. 
the heart of God is so is disposed to mercy and to kindness and to compassion. We, we see that in a passage like John 3, 16. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, so that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. I mean, this is what's amazing about this passage, is that God tests Abraham by telling Abraham to sacrifice his son, his only son Isaac, whom he loves. But God never intended to allow Abraham to go through with it. God never intended to allow Abraham to go through with this. God knew all along that he wasn't going to to have Abraham follow through on killing Isaac, that he was going to keep his promise. Why was God doing all this? Well, one of the reasons was to point forward to, although God wasn't going to allow Abraham to go through with it, God did go through with it. God did uh, give up his son, his only son, Jesus, the one whom he loves so that we could live. God did send the son. The father did send the son and, uh, uh, to, to come to earth. And the son did lay himself down on that altar and died so that we could live. And this reveals the heart of God towards us. God didn't do this reluctantly. It comes from his very heart. He doesn't love the world because the world is lovable. He, He loves the world because love flows from the very fountain of his essence. That's what drove the cross. That's what caused the father to send the son. And it's what drove the son to, to push through Gethsemane and to go to the cross and to to, to keep himself from calling down angels to take him off the cross. It's what drove the son to, to give himself for our sins. It's the love of God. Love is the most natural thing that God does. My first instinct when I'm caught off guard is to snap at someone and be defensive. But God's first instinct is to be gentle and merciful and to forgive. And that's what he was helping Abraham and all of us to see in Genesis 22. Even in the midst of great trials and testing, God does not change. The Lord will provide no matter what. So yes, he is worthy of giving up everything to follow. We do not and we cannot earn God's love. We love him because he first loved us. His undeserved love that he Uh, holds out, woos, and draws us. And I pray that your affections for him are being drawn out uh, this morning. Abraham's faith did not just result in the sparing of Isaac, though. The blessings went much further than that, and they go further than that for us, too. The fourth lesson we learn about a life of faith in this passage, and the last one, is that a a life of faith enjoys God's blessings. A life of faith enjoys God's blessings. Listen to verse 15 to 18 of Genesis 22. It says that the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So God confirmed his covenant with Abraham in the strongest terms possible. He says, by myself I have sworn. Because of Abraham's obedience, he experienced God's blessings. 
it's important not to whitewash that in the text. Uh, it, it very clearly says that God says, because you have obeyed my voice. That, that passage right there can make a Reformed evangelical a little bit uncomfortable. It's like, whoa, whoa, be, like, because of obedience, we're getting blessing. Like, this can almost sound like, like, you know, and I think it's a lot of times because of our aversion to the name it, claim it stuff, the prosperity gospel that, or they promise if you do this, then God's going to bless you. And, and so I understand the aversion, but we, we also got to be careful that we don't whitewash what the text is clearly saying here. And God clearly says that because of Abraham's obedience, he was blessed. Okay. Um, does this mean that if you are obedient to God, that God's going to give you a, a, a child and that your child is going to possess the gate of his enemies? And all that? No, that's not what this means, okay? So this is uh, definitely a descriptive text and not a prescriptive text. What that means is that um, there's a specific promise being made to Abraham about a specific offspring, singular. Right? And um, so let, let's just uh, read down a little bit uh, further here. So uh, what does it say about the offspring? It says that um, your, you, the offspring is going, to be, uh, is going to be multiplied as the stars of heaven, and he's going to possess the gate of his enemies. And in him, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Well, who does that sound like? Does that remind you of anybody? Well, it's pointing to Jesus. Many people will come into God's family through Jesus. So his offspring are going to be as the stars of heaven. Um, Jesus will defeat his enemies, right? So he's going to possess the gate of his enemies. Jesus has conquered sin and death and Satan at the cross and through his resurrection and will upon his return. And in Jesus, all the nations of the earth will be blessed since it is by faith that we become a child of Abraham not through being a blood descendant or by obeying the law. So in him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So this promise, this covenant promise uh, was pointing towards Jesus. It's fulfilled in Jesus. But here's the crazy thing. This is where it kind of applies to us. If you have trusted in Jesus, you get to share in these blessings. Okay. As we walk by faith and obedience to God as the church, we get to participate and share in these blessings as those who have been brought into God's family, right? It's not that we deserve these blessings by our obedience, but, but it's because of our faith in Jesus as uh, the kind of faith that Abraham has, we're united to him. And because Jesus has inherited these blessings, we share in them as well. So what does that mean for us as the church? It means that God's people will be numerous. The church can walk in the confidence that the gates of hell will not prevail against us because God has set his blessings on us. So we will continue to multiply as the stars of heaven and neither persecution nor pandemics can stop that from happening. Churches will be planted. Disciples will continue to be made. I thought about 2 Timothy 2.9 um, where Paul is writing to Timothy from prison and he says, because I preach this good news, I am suffering and have been chained like a criminal. But the word of God cannot be chained. God is an unstoppable force. He's a promise-keeping God, and He will bring all His sheep into the fold. Another thing that this, this promise means that it, for the church is it means that God's people will be victorious. Because Jesus possesses the gate of His enemies, so does the church. 
as part of God's covenant people, we share uh, in Christ, we share in the promised descendants victory over sin and death and Satan. In Christ, the power of sin over believers has been broken. We are no longer slaves. In Christ, those who once followed the prince of the power of the air are now free to walk by the Spirit. In Christ, those who were once enslaved to the fear of death can now exclaim with Paul, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Why? Because since Jesus has risen from the dead, we too will also live with him. We will have eternal life upon his return. And another promise for God's people here is that God's people will be influential. So in Jesus, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And we get to participate in that promise through the Great Commission. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So when we carry out the Great Commission, we're participating in this promised blessing that we see all the way back in Genesis chapter 22. We're sharing in that through Jesus. As sinners from every tribe and tongue and nation are reborn, this covenant promise is being fulfilled before our very eyes. So that's why we plant churches. It's why we partner with missions efforts in places like Iceland with our missionaries there, Logan and Carla Douglas, as they plant Redeemer City in Reykjavik. It's why we equip you, the saints, to participate in this work by having gospel conversations by reaching your neighbors, your coworkers. These promises, guys, they haven't dissolved in the midst of this pandemic. They're still true, even when we don't understand what God is doing. God hasn't changed because you're going through a time of testing or trial. And that's really what we learn here from Genesis chapter 22. We, we learn what faith looks like, and we learn that God will provide for those who trust him with faith like Abraham's. God's people should trust and obey him no matter the circumstances because he always provides. And so as we close, my invitation to you, first of all, is if you've never done that, if you've never trusted in Jesus in that way, that you would do so today. Um, you can do that just simply by praying, confessing your sin before God where you are and acknowledging your need for a Savior and uh, expressing your trust that Jesus died for you on the cross, rose from the dead, and um, that he is offering you forgiveness of sins if you'll repent of your sin and trust in him. And if you're a believer, um, just two things uh, as we close. Number one, um, 2 Corinthians 13.5 says that we ought to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. So, Uh, this is a good opportunity for you to really examine, am I walking with uh, the faith of Abraham uh, in my life right now? Uh, This is part of the reason this passage is in the Bible is to demonstrate for us what it looks like to trust in God, okay? Um, So that's the first thing. But the second thing is that uh, the, the reason we can have faith like that is because God has already revealed himself to us as the God who provides as the God whose heart is a heart of love, as the God who is faithful and who is trustworthy. And it's, it's as we get that vision of God and as, once we, as we see God for who He is and as His love is poured into our hearts, that's what excites 
faith. That's what creates faith. Faith is a gift from God that comes as we see who God is. And, and, and as we see him, our faith um, uh, is, is built up. It's given to us as a gift. And so I don't want you to come away thinking you need to muster up faith or that you need to try harder to believe. What I want you to understand is, uh, is that genuine faith uh, always evidences itself uh, in obedience. Uh, but ultimately, if you find that you are lacking that, then the thing to do is not to try harder, but it's to confess that to God and to ask Him to help you in your unbelief, to ask Him to help you begin to walk out your faith and to uh, to obey Him in whatever it is that He's calling you to do. So uh, let me close this in prayer, uh, and uh, then we'll end our time together. Father, I thank You for uh, Your Word. I thank You that You are the God who provides. Um, I thank You most of all, God, for your provision of a sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, who died so that we could live. You are worthy. Um, God, you are good. Uh, because of that, we can trust you. Uh, no matter what the circumstances are, uh, we can trust you even when we don't understand. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.